Hello and welcome once again to Masterpieces on Fire. This week we are warming our hands next to a dustbin containing Gustav Kayabot's Le Raboteur de Parquet from 1875. And I can tell you at this very moment the fire is producing some extraordinarily vibrant green flames, probably as a result of the copper-based pigments commonly used by artists around the time this work was painted. About 15 minutes ago, just before we came on the air, three men removed the painting from its protective casing inside the back of the gallery van and very, very carefully carried it over here, taking great care not to drop it or damage it in any way. We then waited a few moments for the fire to achieve optimum strength, whereupon one of the men bent the painting in half until the frame snapped and then carefully lowered it into the fire, creating the splendid spectacle we have before us now. In fact, so impressive are those flames that several people from houses immediately adjacent to this area of wasteland, who at first came over to politely inquire just what exactly we were doing, have stayed to enjoy the fire, and a particularly loquacious middle-aged lady has now begun passing out mugs of hot tea amongst the crowd. Kayabot, one of the lesser known of the French Impressionist group that came to prominence during the second half of the 19th century, nonetheless one of its most celebrated members and indeed an early pioneer of photography as an art form. This masterpiece depicting three men hard at work on the floor of a bourgeois apartment that we set fire to just a short while ago contains, or should I say contained, <laughs> <laughs> a photographic realism quite at odds with many of the great works of the Impressionist style, replacing the vivid colours and characteristic dance of light with a mildly claustrophobic interior scene defined by exact tonal values and a, an almost geometric approach to its composition. Now, of course, it isn't just this painting that we're burning tonight. We got things going about half an hour ago, using a number of pages torn from one of the very last surviving copies of Lyrical Ballads by William Wordsworth. And if I may say what a joy it was to be beside an English fire. <laughs> a young man from the museum removed those leaves one by one before very carefully dropping them into the rapidly heating dustbin. And just before anyone starts to worry, I can confirm the young man was wearing his special protective gloves as he was doing so to ensure those pages, now of course over 200 years old, were not damaged in any way. Well, that's all we have time for this evening. You can probably hear the police are on their way, so in a very short while I'll be running off and hiding in a nearby building site until they've moved on. I'm happy to confirm tonight's masterpiece has now been completely destroyed, so there'll be none of those clever clogs with their headset magnifying glasses restoring this one. We'll be back at the same time next week when we'll be setting fire to Vermeer's The Astronomer, whilst burning pages from one of the last surviving copies of Edgar Allan Poe's Tamerlane. Good night.
cool king and the pretenders to the throne. Cool King was the coolest man in the kingdom and everybody knew it. Cool King's coolness was so widely acknowledged that no one in the kingdom would ever have thought to challenge it. And then one day... I believe myself to be cooler than you, said a man shortly after he had been shown into the throne room. <gasps> a gasp was quickly followed by an audible silence as everyone wondered how Cool King would react. Nobody during Cool King's reign had ever challenged his position as the coolest, so none of his courtiers knew what to expect. Cool King looked up from his headphones magazine in which he had been reading all about the best headphones to buy. I'm sorry, he said absently. Did somebody say something? The royal court laughed and much gentle applause was to be heard. I said, replied the man in a slightly louder voice, that I am cooler than you. And what's more, I have obtained quantifiable proof of the fact. The gentle applause died away to nothing, leaving the throne room once again in vaguely panicked silence. Cool King opened his mouth to speak. But just as the first word was forming on his lips, a second man was shown in. I believe I am cooler than Cool King, said the second man, and I can provide peer-reviewed evidence to support my claim. A deafening silence filled the throne room as all eyes turned to Cool King, whose attention had naturally returned to his headphones magazine. I'm very busy at the moment, said Cool King, but if the court will permit me, I believe I may be able to find time for a, a royal tournament to decide once and for all just whom is the coolest in the land. Word of the royal tournament spread quickly, and by the next morning, every single person in the kingdom was present to witness the opening ceremony. Unfortunately, the tournament could not begin straight away as all three contestants were late. Lambert Simnel was four hours late. Perkin Warbeck was two days late. And Cool King was one year late. When the tournament finally began, each of the contestants had their headphones examined by a panel of judges. The panel decided Lambert Simnel had good headphones. Perkin Warbeck had better headphones, but Cool King had the best headphones. Following this, the contestants were asked to give their opinions on feminism, and the crowd gasped each time the men claimed that they themselves were actually feminists. Lambert Simnel made that claim 100 times. Perkin Warbeck made it 1,000 times and Cool King made it one million times. Next, the contestants were asked to order a cup of coffee, and the time it took to prepare each drink was carefully recorded. Lambert Simnel's coffee took two minutes to prepare. Perkin Warbeck's took two hours, but Cool King's coffee took two weeks to prepare. Finally, all three contestants were asked to unfold their fold-away bicycles on a busy railway platform and the number of people inconvenienced was noted down. Lambert Simnel managed to inconvenience a small crowd. Perkin Warbeck inconvenienced a big crowd. 
but Cool King inconvenienced everyone in the kingdom. After the tournament had finished, the court jester announced the results. <coughs> Lambert Simnel is cool. Perkin Warbeck is cooler. But Cool King is the coolest. The following day, in a widely acknowledged act of sportsmanship, Cool King arranged a ceremony in which the severed heads of the two pretenders were placed on spikes at the entrance to his castle, rather than fed to wild boars, as was customary. So everything worked out nicely in the end for Cool King. The story of why I'm on this bus is quite a remarkable one. Uh, the day began with a light meal, uh, nothing special, just a water biscuit followed by a glass of steam. You might turn up your nose at such a sparse plate, but I didn't want to fill myself up before the big wedding banquet. I've been on the run since 11am this morning because I committed a horrible crime at the wedding and have been obstructed justice ever since. Of course, the only real obstruction I've been party to is running away from those policemen, but the law is the law, and I'm breaking in every time I get on a different bus. I thought it might be prudent to leave the country immediately following the reception. But of course, that's not as easy as it once was, is it? And not with all this biometric business they've got now, and this satellite location device on my left wrist. Supposedly, it allows the police to pinpoint my exact location anywhere on planet Earth to within 25 centimetres. But maybe they don't know how to work it properly, because I haven't been caught yet and it's been nearly two hours. <laughs> 25 centimetres is only a quarter of a metre, you know. That's not much, is it? 25 centimetres between me and the hangman's noose. That's why I have to keep moving at all times. It's, it's why when you first got on the bus, I was sitting over there, and now I'm sitting over here, next to you. No good standing still anymore. I've got to stay on the move at all times. So anyway, that's, uh, that's why I'm on the bus. No, 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 no. I just do the bucket. See, it comes down here on a conveyor belt, right? And it stops. Then a machine comes down and fills it up with cement. All I do is make sure the bucket is in the right place so when the machine comes down, none of the cement goes on the floor. Because when that happens, I have to get the cloth clean all the cement up and sometimes when you're doing that the next bucket come down and it's chaos so I just make sure the bucket is in the right place and that's all bloke next to me he's got a pole thing he sticks it in there mixes it all about helps the drying process apparently and after that there's another geezer he's called Tony he's got one of them pistols Andy and he says to the person get in the bucket or I'll shoot you so they get in the bucket sharpish and it moves on to a sort of big oven thing where the cement is dried properly. It's not like an oven where you do your dinner. It's like a long thing where the heat comes from the bottom. Sometimes the person in the bucket gets out and runs away when it's in the oven. And that's when Tony has to shoot them. It gives them a warning, obviously, you know, one in the air. But if they're not back in the bucket inside 10 seconds, or at the very least heading back in that direction, he shoots them. And when it comes out of there, there's another geezer, his name's Brian. He's got a pencil thing and he sticks it in the bucket to check the cement is all dried. If it is, it moves on. Obviously, if it ain't dried properly, it gets taken back to the start of the oven, put through a second time, then it's ready. Next up, there's two geezers, they're called Steve 
and Steve. They left the bucket with the person in it off the conveyor belt, put it in the back of the van. Then when there's about half a dozen buckets of people in them on the van, John comes down out of the office with the keys, closes the back and off he goes. He'll drive around a bit, won't he, until he finds a town with a nice pier. And then he gets them out of the back of the van, puts them on this sort of cart thing, takes them down to the end of the pier and pushes them in the seat. Then he comes back, does all the paperwork. There's a lot of people involved in this. It's a whole process, know what I mean? I just do the bucket. Shall I take it? Just wait. I, I'm going to miss it. No, you're not. Well, shall I take it? Just wait. What for? What am I? What am I waiting for? Get ready. I am ready. Should I take it? Are you ready? Yes. Shall I take it now? Yes. Oh, it's gone. You waited too long. Hello, Nathan Pickledon here with some more poetry. You probably remember that last time I had a special guest with me. He was sitting over there on the other chair. But unfortunately he made so much noise I had to invite him to sit elsewhere. Now, as you may have seen on the news, the last two weeks have been very peculiar. I've had all manner of people knocking on my door asking me questions I didn't know the answers to. Indeed, these interruptions became so frequent I had to arrange for my guest to be taken to a location near Lake Windermere, where he now resides on a permanent basis. It's all been an enormous inconvenience to me, but I'm hoping that will put an end to it. Needless to say, I'm still yet to hear anything from the office of the company I hope will soon be publishing my first book. But I understand these places receive hundreds of submissions every week, and I shouldn't expect mine to be given any special attention. This poem is called The Name and Home Address of the Owner of the Publishing Company I Hope Will Soon Publish My First Book. Maxwell Durant, 1864 Douglas Boulevard, London, East 19, S40. Thank you.